You're listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author Sarah Box, where you get the inside scoop on the steps action takers and decision makers take to align their purpose to their principles and achieve their goals in business and life. We focus on the mantra, no labels, no limits, no excuses. And now, without further ado, please welcome your commanding coach with plenty of chutzpah and heart, Sarah Box. Hi there, this is Sarah, and thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the No Labels, No Limits podcast, a podcast all about shedding our limiting labels and beliefs so we can live authentically and into our full potential. This week, we are joined by Frank Forensic, and Frank is an internationally recognized leader in health and performance education. He earned his BA at Stanford University in human biology and neuroscience. The neuroscience part is super interesting to me and has over 30 years of teaching experience in martial arts and health education. He holds a black belt ranking in karate and Aikido and has traveled to South Africa on several occasions to study human origins and the ancestral environment. He's a member of the Council of Elders at the Mind-Body Ecology Collective and a diplomat member of the American Institute of Stress, which will be a big focus of our conversation today. He's presented at numerous venues, including the Ancestral Health Symposium, Google, the Dr. Robert Kahn Hart Conference, and the Institute of Design at Stanford University. He's a former columnist for Paleo Magazine and is the author of numerous books about health and the human predicament, including his book, Beware of False Tigers, which we're gonna talk about today. And that's a book about focus, responding appropriately to the right tigers in the right proportion at the right time. I have many questions about that. So with that, let's welcome our guest, Frank Forensic. Frank, how are you? I'm doing great and delighted to be here with you today. I'm, I'm excited to have you on this episode. Um, I also got more and more intrigued when I did research and read more about you. Your background is varied, to say the least. Mm -hmm. um, but I like to start by asking all our guests a question about with everything you have going on, writing, teaching, all of that, is there something that you do every day that keeps you focused on your own big goals and dreams? Yes. I. I'm a movement person and I, I move every day and I used to call this exercise, but now I call it movement and I do movement snacks every day. So that is what keeps me focused. And I will, of course, like everyone, spend a lot of time on the computer, but this is always broken up by movement. And at the end of a movement snack, I'm, I've always got a renewed focus about what I'm trying to do. So that is really helpful for me. It's, it's a great practice. And I know a lot of people like the word exercise and they like to do big blocks of exercise. But I find that doing these movement snacks is really helpful throughout the day. Okay. I want a little more info on that because I agree with you that there's something I want to know what you call a movement snack in particular, but there is something about movement and it doesn't have to be in these long, heavy duty intensives, but that it, like your brain is just different when you're done with it. So talk about what is a movement snack for you um, and how do you then re uh, reconnect that with your focus? Right. Well, I've got a background in the martial arts. So a lot of the moves that I do are, 
simple shapes, reaches, punches, uh, squats and lunges, those types of things, always aiming towards integration of the whole body. So the phrase they use in the athletic world is to get your hips talking to your shoulders. That's key. So that the spine now is a conduit of information between the hips and the shoulders. And now the whole body begins to, to function as a single unit. And the contractions of muscle actually feed the brain with these neurotransmitters and neurotropic um, hormones. So it's, it's a win-win all the way around. How long is a snack? Oh, a snack can be just a couple of minutes all the way up to 15 minutes. And of course, I'm fortunate because I have a dog and he's always after me. He wants to go out all the time. So we do the walks and that's great. Go to the park, do another movement snack and feel pretty good by the end of that. And when you're done with that, how do you refocus? Well, for me, the I'm, I'm pretty noise sensitive person and I have a pair of noise canceling headphones and I've used those over the years now that when I sit down on my computer, boom, I put on the noise canceling headphones and I know that that is my time to focus. So it, it's a nice concrete statement that I'm about to engage. And then when I start to lose my focus, take off the headphones and do another movement snack. So not so much about um scheduling the movement snacks but staying aware of what's going on with you and then responding to what you need to do in that moment right yeah i let let my body call the shots and if i'm feeling fatigued i'll honor that and if i'm feeling focused i'll go as hard as i can so the reason i dig into that is i think the tendency can be the opposite right i'm tired i just need to push on for another 30 minutes and it'll be done versus saying take a break um, and my experience has been when I give myself a break, which I'm now going to call movement snacks. Thank you very much. Um, when I come back, what I thought would take me 30 is 10 minutes. Just mm -hmm. because I'm not tired, I'm not struggling. It's, and sometimes in those little breaks, like the insights happen, I'm thinking, oh, you're making this way harder than it needs to be, Sarah. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true with writing because I'll sit down to write and I struggle and I'm suffering and I'm trying to get the words out and nothing's happening. And I'm, I'm writing and deleting and writing and deleting. And then I take my movement snack and I come back in the house and I say, oh, I know what I was trying to say now. <laughs> and then it comes. So. It's what, that's that thing of disengaging that talkative mm -hmm. brain that's going because, you know, for me, I, you know, and I don't have the years on the um, dojo that you do. I don't have anywhere near that, but I do know that when I can disengage my mind from its chatter, mm -hmm. that it things flow better. And then all of a sudden my subconscious is doing its thing and I come back and I'm going, okay. So thanks for indulging me and in diving down in the movement oh, rabbit hole a bit. <laughs> it's a good one. So, but I do, you know, you remind us that our world is full of tigers, what you call tigers, and those are stressors. But you say that only some of them are real and that if if we can learn the ways of the tigers, we will become stronger, wiser and more resilient. Can you pull that apart and tell us what false tigers are and then what are their ways? Right. Well, I always compare the modern 
predicament that we are experiencing with the paleo. So when I say the paleo, I'm talking about prehistory. I'm talking about human life before agriculture and before, say, 10,000 years ago. And during that time, during the paleo, we had plenty of stressors. But those stressors were simple and they were easy to understand. So we had real tigers, we had real carnivores, we had real wildfires, we had real encounters with gravity or fast water in a river or that or maybe hostile tribes on the other side of the river, that kind of thing. But these stressors were always simple and they were always coherent they were easy to understand and there was never really much doubt i mean if a lion comes into your camp you know what the stressor is and there's really no confusion on that score so now fast forward into the modern era and what we've done we've given ourselves all kinds of labor saving devices but we've also increased the stress load a lot of the stressors now that we have are vague and hard to understand it's um it's different a lot of these are abstract you have computer viruses you never know where they are or when they're going to bite you you have fine print in the contracts you have phishing attacks you have scams you have unknown toxins in the environment all of these things are potentially tigers for us and now we're, we're tasked with sorting it all out so that's an unprecedented challenge for humans in the modern world. But how do we know the difference? Okay, so some of those stressors, you, the modern world stressors, a few of the many um, that you listed, right? Some of those are very real. I mean, they exist. I don't, that's what I mean. That real isn't, not necessarily as an imminent, but they exist. We don't want to say, oh, that's not possible. It would never happen to me. Um, so how do we sort the real from the false so that we can identify or like for me i'll use myself as example so that i can just go that is not something to worry about now like i can feel my cortisol going up my adrenaline so how do we filter and sort that in our day-to-day -day living right well the, the simplest answer to that is with science and with data and that type of thing. So for example, the, the classic example here is that our bodies are afraid of flying in airplanes. We think air, uh, air travel is fundamentally dangerous. But if you do the research and look at the data, you realize that driving in a car is actually a lot more dangerous than flying in an airplane. So if you've got data and you've got facts that you can consult, then you've got a chance to make that determination. The problem is we often don't have enough information. And so we're forced to rely on the opinions of others or rely on our gut feelings and it's it's a tremendous challenge so i don't have all the answers on that but we we have to do our homework and our due diligence to the extent that we can and that's the place to start let's talk about some of the other stressors that because you know it's a convert it's a common conversation i have in fact i was just talking about it this morning with another leader and um we had this one set of plans that we were going to do in a couple months for a team and she said you know what i'm looking at my own her own team she mm -hmm. goes 
we are under so much stress. I've been paying attention to the conversations that in a different form. And she said, I think we need to really take a step back from the grind. Mm -hmm. My word, not hers. And just let people be, you know, like help them reconnect and some of that. So, but I know it's a huge challenge, Frank. And I know, and when you're looking at that in your book, you're really talking about some of that. So are there insidious ways that false tigers kind of, I think about it like your visual about it, the river, right? But are there insidious ways that false tigers start encircling our camp of safety and pulling our attention off? Does that make sense? Right, yeah, and I think one of the characteristic responses to stress is inflating the size of the challenge and in effect making mountains out of molehills. I mean, we're, we're all good at this. So that's something that once you know you have that tendency, then that's something that we can we can live with and maybe uh, use to diminish the size of our stressors. But um, the total stress burden on the human animal right now is just, it's just unbelievable. I mean, we have stressors that we never had before in human history, everything from the pandemic to this looming ecological collapse, all of these things touch us. They may not touch our bodies directly, but they touch what native people call the long body. Our bodies are, are in effect bigger than they, they appear. So we affiliate with things outside of ourselves. When those things are threatened, then we feel that as stress. So, that's, I think, the first solution is to give ourselves a break because we are up against this crushing stress load and we expect ourselves to be able to to deal with that. But that's asking a lot. <laughs> I mean, we're asking a lot of ourselves in this and we have to back off, I think. So what? Oh, man, you just said something I want to pull on that thread. Let's talk about the long body. OK, and the ancient people and. I don't know who's listening at this moment or who's listening in the future, but I have questions about that because I know, I know just here, not from science, but that's a real deal, right? We are affected by things. We're affected by our environment, the people we talk to, all of that. How big is our long body? So for instance, is it clear over to people in other places? How big is this body that I'm getting the vibrations and all that stuff affecting me? That's a great question, because in stress science, they usually talk about stress is triggered when there's a perceived threat to the organism. But the organism is, in effect, a lot bigger than, right. than we think. And the key word in all of this is continuity. You hear biologists talk about the continuity of the body with habitat. We're so in just incredibly sensitive to minor fluctuations in our habitat. So when our habitat is under stress for various reasons we literally feel that in the body and this is native people talk about this all the time they they don't talk about the environment as being something outside of the body they are always talking about continuity with the natural world <clears throat> so you hear all, all the time saying, I am the land, the land is me. I am the river, the river is me. I am the forest, the forest is me. And when those things are threatened, 
we feel it too. But it's the same thing with our social environment too. We're such hyper social creatures that when anybody within our orbit, within our circle is threatened, we feel that as a stress too. And of course, all of this is on steroids because of social media and everything else. So now the long body is in effect as big as the world, as big as the planet and something that happens in Ukraine or in Afghanistan or wherever it is will have a pronounced effect on our own bodies. And that also is unique in human history. So when people aren't aware of that, and I, you know, I don't know if you remember, it's not been that long. It's a couple of years ago. I grew up in California. I now live in the next state over. It's all the same to me. It's the mountains there. So we are in the late fall and raging fires, just raging fires up and down. Um, but I cannot even tell you the profound sadness and grief, right? I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God. And it wasn't, it was just profound sadness and grief, right? Mm -hmm. For the mm -hmm. earth, for all of it. And I couldn't put my finger on it. My husband said, do you want to go over and see your family? I said, I can't go to California right now, honey. I'm, it's too sad for me. And he goes, we're not yeah. going to be near the fires. But it was this whole thing of like, I'm grieving. And, and then I thought, or I'm nuts. I'm not sure which. So um, that's why I wanted to know like how far and how deep is that? And then you do see it like with Ukraine and the people here suffering or Afghan. I mean, it's, it's, we're in the midst of all of this, Frank. Right. Yeah. And then our defense mechanism a lot of times is to deny those things are happening, to isolate ourselves from the world. And that may be something that you can do in the short term, but it's definitely not a long term solution for living any kind of meaningful life. So in effect, we have to feel those things and we have to suffer some of that as well. I think it, it just comes with the territory now. So what are the... Um some of the other consequences of this massive social stress we're feeling. Right. Well, the first one on my list is called reversion to the familiar. And this is, this is actually really huge. And in the first place, we know this because we do it every day. If you're having a hard day, what do you want to do? You want to go home to your living room where it's a safe, familiar place and you want to eat the same foods you're familiar with and read the same books and watch the same movies and do the whole thing that you're familiar with. And in a small dose, that's therapeutic. That's the way to do it. But when stress becomes so onerous that we revert to the familiar over and over and over again, we become incapable of creativity. And that's what we need so much right now in the world is to have some kind of creative response to this. But no, we're stressed. And so we revert back to the familiar. That is a huge consequence. And we're not really talking about it. What, um, what have you seen as people do that? Like what has been some of the outcomes from people reverting to the familiar? I call it holding up basically. Right. However, people, however people define that for themselves, they hold up. They're not available. Right. Well, we go back to familiar culture and 
a lot of people say, well, this is consumer culture that we go back to because we've been doing that for the last few decades. And here comes the climate crisis and the ecological crisis that is asking us to do something different. We say, well, no, I'm too stressed. I'm going to go back to consumer culture. And that is uh, that's not going to be productive to do that. So that's closely related to what we might call siege mentality and hoarding, where I notice a lot of people buying a lot more stuff than they really need. So they're, they're turning their house into a little fortress, that kind of thing. Um, excess reactivity, people having hair triggers. And that's easy to see in politics all over the place. I mean, people getting far more reactive than, uh, than we really need to. So some of, those are some of the consequences. Yeah, I see that. And you can just see it in, um... I don't know if you've noticed this, but you know, like in the, if you're on the internet at all and you're, we have a neighborhood app thing, but it's interesting to watch. The comments are so critical of everybody. I'm thinking, excuse me, this is useful for me when I can find a dog groomer or someone says I'm looking for my pet, but I don't want to hear rants, right? But they're like, it doesn't take much to get someone's feelers twisted. And then they just like, rawr. I'm going, what happened? Right, right. And the classic example now is the, the number of air rage incidents, the number of people who are going off on the airplanes. And we never used to see that. I mean, people always behave well on airplanes and now everybody's got a hair trigger. So that, that's got nothing to do with masks or ideology or political affiliation. I think that's just stress. I, I think you're right because yeah. I've seen totally great people under normal circumstances. All of a sudden I'm going, what the heck just happened to yeah. you, right? You're <laughs> off the edge. So, yeah. but Frank, you know, one of the things you shared with me is that you you recommend or you have a tip for like teachers, coaches, trainers, anybody who works with people, parents, right? That you say we need to see and remember the autonomic nervous system and in short to treat people like animals. Right. What does that mean? I would love <laughs> to be treated like we treat our dog. So. Yeah, yeah. And that's a funny turn of phrase, because a lot of people think that when you treat someone like an animal, you're treating them poorly. But no, in fact, what I'm trying to get at here is that no, we need to be nice to people. And even more than that, we need to pay attention to their neurobiology, and to pay attention to the autonomic nervous system, which, you know, a little refresher course here, going back to high school, the autonomic nervous system is this ancient wiring deep inside the body that will either drive our fight flight mechanism, or it will allow us to go into a healing state of mind and body. And it operates like a teeter totter. So one side is on and the other side is off. And that's fundamental to all these human interactions that we have. So if you're a teacher, a coach, a therapist, you want to know this, you want to know what people's autonomic nervous system is doing. Because if they're in the sweet spot of stress, Remember, stress is a frenemy. It can be good for you. If you're in the sweet spot of stress, then people learn better. They behave better. They're more creative, the whole thing. But once they go over the top of that curve, then they, uh, they're going to have problems. So you have to take the animal into account in all of this. Questions about that so far. I may have another before you're done answering. Okay, so the teeter-totter, let's use that analogy. 
first of all, I don't think that it's necessarily accept. It's not that it's not accepted. I think people don't acknowledge that stress can be good because we've been like we're under the siege of it, right? So we're thinking right. I can't take any more stress. Talk a little bit about a few of the types of quote unquote good stressors in our lives. Right. And you mentioned something that's really important there because in the in the standard narrative in the popular culture we tend to think that stress is uniformly bad and just uh, the utopian idea is just to get rid of it entirely but that doesn't make any sense you, you're going to have stress stress is good it's most obvious in the world of athletic conditioning that's what a coach does a coach gets his athletes to suffer some stress but just the right amount that he wants them to train really hard on the athletic field or in the gym or wherever it is, and then to rest as deeply as possible. That's the athletic model. And when they are under the right amount of stress, they perform better, memory is better, cognition is better, everything about the organism runs better until you hit the tipping point. So that's what a good coach does. And I think it's the same thing for a good teacher, a good therapist, push people until that golden spot where then you have to start backing off. So it's good to know there's a moment or there is a period, not necessarily just a bleep, but there's a period of some discomfort. Yes, yes. Um, which stretches you. I'm using my language, not necessarily. Yeah, athletic, yeah, no, but no. you get a little bit of a stretch and then you retreat from that and then that no longer feels that that's not as big of a discomfort next time you go into it because it's familiar and if it's a muscle it's strengthened hopefully a little so but my question then would be when you say that we need to treat people like animals there's an implied sense that i need to be aware so your example of like being aware of the autonomic nervous system i need to slow down enough that i can watch your body language listen to your breathing, right, watch right. your physical symptoms to go, holy cremole, man, his veins are popping in his neck. He's about, <laughs> really, sometimes you can be talking to someone, they look like this, and you're watching a vein or they're breathing and you're thinking they are so, or they're sitting like this, I'm going, okay, I've just pissed you off. <laughs> because you're trying to control yourself instead of talk. Right, right. And you can read between the lines with their conversation. You, you can pick up the, the cues on that. What we're seeing, though, in this, in this domain is that a proposed solution to all of this is to measure people's cortisol levels, right? And that seems to be the holy grail for a lot of people. If we could measure their cortisol levels, we would know if they're in the sweet spot or not, and then we could adjust our curriculum accordingly. But that's, that's a technical solution, and I think the human solution is better here. I think it's better to listen and listen deeply and pay close attention to how the animal is doing. That'll tell us what we need to know. Oh, listen, pay attention. <laughs> yeah. And verify, right? I could make assumptions that something you're doing is because of something else, and I could be totally wrong. Right, right. And you can, 
you can expect certain changes in people's performance as they go deeper and deeper into stress. So let's say you're teaching music to a young person. You can expect their performance to be good early on in the session. And then you put them under a little more stress, ask them to play a little bit more complex passages. And eventually they're going to start to break down. Their performance will start to weaken. And then before that goes too far, then that's time for a break. So there's there's plenty of information there that we can work with. I like it. Okay, so I'm shifting gears a little bit on you here. Um, sure. I have two, two couple things. One, I watched one of your videos. I, mm. It was so fun. Um, and it was the one on your um, movement, right? Mm. It was your short video. So what I'm curious about is what some of this well actually what are the specific movements in that video for and there and for folks who haven't seen it it's called the exuberant animal short form yes um, which was so fun but it's also big i would describe the movements as big and opening but i don't know mm -hmm. what you intended them to be can you talk about that a bit sure the uh the purpose of that form is simply, well, part of it's borrowed from martial arts, part of it's borrowed from dance, but a lot of it is to take the body into extension. So th this is another thing that we can observe in, in human body postures is that when we spend a lot of time in flexion where the, the shoulders come forward and now the spine is collapsing down onto the torso and the breathing is restricted and compressed a lot of us live that way and that flexed posture is associated with depression it's associated with a feeling of helplessness and fatigue and just general you know, yuckiness of, of our relationship with the world. So you might call that an epidemic of flexion in the modern world. And extension takes us in the opposite way entirely. And this is what dancers are often doing. They're saying, let's take the spine into extension. Let's stand up straight. Let's reach up and behind ourselves so that now the chest is opening up, the ribs are stretching out and the breathing is free now. And it's, it's a win-win for the body. So you might just call it a celebration of extension. And it, it feels good in, in a physical sense, but it's also spiritual too. Well, that's what it felt like doing it, right? Oh, good, good. <laughs> Very big. Well, and I am one of those people who if I'm writing or on a computer, it's just over the course of a day, you mm -hmm. start closing in. But I can't help but make a connection between that close or the flexion in with what you talked about, like mimicking that coming in and cocooning in our homes when we're overly stressed too. Absolutely. So, yeah. Psychically, it's a antidote to that right come in like this says i'm not a victim right mm -hmm. i'm not having to close down i'm not out of control the whatever right it can mean different things to whomever but it was very um we'll put the link in the show notes but folks if you're listening check it out it's not a long video he's got other videos check those out too but i just thought this was fun but it did want me it didn't make me want to ask you um, what has the impact of martial arts been on your life and how you've gone forward? 
because there is a philosophy behind the arts. Sure. Yes. Yeah. I'd be happy to talk about that. And I guess the first thing I would say is that there's a huge diversity in the martial art world. So it's hard to make generalizations. Yeah, there's everything from street survival all the way up to the most spiritual stuff you could imagine. But for me, the inspiration was primarily educational and getting the opportunity to study with some amazing teachers, both men and women, people who are really taking a good hard look at the human condition and using the martial arts as a metaphor for how to touch the world. And that is really exciting because you have some people who are hard style teachers and they talk about punching and kicking and, and that kind of thing. Other people, soft style teachers and using those metaphors. But um, it's it's been the best educational experience for me that I could even imagine because you're doing you're moving your body with other people and then you stop and you listen to the teacher and everybody's on the same page. Everybody's focused. There's no electronic devices. There's no announcements over the PA system. There's no clock on the wall. There's nothing except you and the teacher. And that is that's been the best education model that I've ever encountered. And so how many years have you been doing this? Well, I did it pretty intensively for 15 years, I would say. And then I started to to explore some other avenues, including massage school and um, rock climbing and a few other things. But um, I, I still have my hand in it. Yeah. So that's why I asked. I mean, partly because of what you just described about the environment of learning, right? Yeah, the different yes. styles um, and applying that to life. I was just curious how that you carried that or have carried that forward into everything else you're doing. Right. And it even carries over into design of a dwelling or a classroom. I, I can see your your dwelling there is very simple, very Zen-like. And I'm going, yeah, that's the kind of place that I, I could do some good work in. I mean, it just, it, it goes way beyond just the physical arts. Yeah. 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 Yep, that was my experience in the short amount of time that I practiced that and the fact that I realized I could do Aikido better than jujitsu. <laughs> I was not good at falling, um, rolling better. But anyway, off track here. So what would be one last word for this interview, last word that you want to leave our listeners with? Relating to stress. Let's, uh, I take some inspiration from an unlikely place. I read a book by a guy who's a teacher of screenwriters in Hollywood. And his name's Robert McKee, and he's taught all the big screenwriters and all the major blockbuster movies that we've seen over the last 20 years, he's had a hand in. And he talks a lot about character development. And you start, you sit down, you watch the movie, and you're curious about the protagonist. Who is this person? What, what kind of character do they have? How are they going to unfold during the course of the movie? And what McKee says is that the way you reveal character in a movie or a screenplay or a book 
is you put that person under increasing levels of stress. And it doesn't matter whether it's an action adventure movie or a romantic comedy, it's all the same because now you have more and more stress on the protagonist. And by the time that you get to an hour and a half or two hours now, um, you know the character of your protagonist. And you know that precisely because that person was under stress. So this reframes everything for us, because now stress is not some onerous thing that we're trying to get rid of. No, stress is what illuminates our character. And in that sense, it's welcome. And we can remember this every time we're feeling lousy and feeling like I'm, I'm just hopeless. I can't do it. You can still you can still conduct yourself with dignity and still stay engaged. Yes, you're under stress. That's <laughs> that's what the screenwriter wrote for you. And so you uh, you can still perform. And now you're getting to learn who you are. And that's you know, we pay good money for that. Right. Well, stress will teach you that. So stress is a friend of me. Stress is a teacher. And that's it's valuable, incredibly valuable. Frank, I can't think of a better way to end this discussion than on that word, words of wisdom um, and reframe. That was super powerful. I want to thank you for being a guest on the No Labels, No Limits podcast and for sharing your wisdom and experiences and be willing to go all over the map in a conversation. <laughs> well, it was a real pleasure. I, I really enjoyed this. So I uh, hope to be in touch. You've been listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author, change agent, and strategic vision coach, Sarah Box. You can grab the show notes and find out how to work with Sarah at sarahbox.com forward slash No Labels, No Limits podcast. We'd love this podcast to reach as many people as possible. So please remember to rate, leave a five-star review, and share the podcast with someone you think would get value from this conversation. Until next time, keep taking those daily action steps to align your purpose to your principles and achieve your goals in business and life.